a great song and uh, taken from Exodus 15. We'll be looking at this morning and encourage you to turn your Bibles there to Exodus. Uh, we're going to be kind of looking at several uh, things from Exodus 13 uh, through 15, different uh, passages in there. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus 13, verse 17. Uh, as you do, just a reminder, uh, first of all, um, as Mike mentioned, our newcomer lunch this afternoon, right after the service, we're going to be in uh, the banquet room right across the hall. Love to have you come and join us for that. If you're newer to our church, it's your first time or 17th time or whatever time. We've had people who've been here for a couple years and have come to their first uh, newcomer lunch after that. Don't wait that long, but uh, if, if it's been that long for you and you still haven't been to one, love to have you come and kind of spend some time with the church leaders getting to know uh, getting to know us and us getting to know you. Uh, this can be a, a church that's, uh, you know, with, with a lot of people, you can kind of sneak in, sneak out, and we don't want that to be, we want to be able to, to fellowship and uh, answer any questions you might have and uh, get to know you. And so I'd love for you to be a part of that after service where we're going to tear down some things and get some kids out of that room, and so there'll be a little bit of time where we stand around awkwardly, just embrace that, and uh, then we'll, we'll have uh, lunch together and uh, have a great time of fellowship. Also, this evening is our Sunday evening service. Love to have you come out and be a part of that. Jeff Lane will be teaching. We're talking about marks of a healthy church. And we'll be talking about um, missions and, and how it's and, uh, the gospel and how those things are marks of a healthy church. And so come and uh, join us for that. And uh, then also kind of along the, the theme of a church fellowshipping well together, uh, we're taking directory pictures. This is a, a huge thing. It's very important. And we'd love for you to, if you haven't already, sign up for that or I believe if you want to send in a picture, you can do that, but it has to be within the next few days or so. I think November 14th-ish or 15th, somewhere around in there. So um, this, is, this is important, I think, for us as we uh, try to uh, know one another well and be able to encourage each other. Uh, I, I have trouble with names. I literally have trouble with the names of my own children. Um, we have a directory for them, and I just, okay, you're brown-haired, older, Austin. Um, okay, that part's not true, but I do struggle with names and would love, uh, and maybe you're like that as well, and it just helps us fellowship well together. And so please, if you haven't already signed up to take a photo, you can do that today at the Welcome Center, you can call the church office, or you can go to the website. Please, please do that for uh, our, your joy and the joy of the church. Um, and if that's not enough, you get a free 8 by 10 photo. So... Uh, and a free directory. So if those, all those things together, why wouldn't you do it, right? So please, please be a part of that. Well, we're here in Exodus 13, and so if you are able to, uh, if you would, stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning. So people of Israel have left Egypt, and we come to verse 17 of Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people round by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And 
The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Go down to verse 1 of 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it talks about Pharaoh and, and his plans to, to get the people back and how they, he sends his chariots after them. You come down to verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the the sea on dry ground and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. 
And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. The people of Israel feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then you come into chapter 15, and there's a response of worship. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse, his rider, he has thrown into the sea. And he talks about God being their salvation and what he has done. And we come to verse 11. We sang just a moment ago, uh, Mike and Philip saying, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are majestic, you're holy, you're powerful. We pray that as we we contemplate this reality of who you are and and who we are, that we would respond rightly with hearts of of worship, fearing you and, and believing and trusting in you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. On Friday and yesterday, my family and I went down to Indianapolis and I ran the monumental marathon there in Indianapolis. And um, I know there's nothing worse than than running illustrations uh, for people who don't like running. The only thing worse than running illustrations is is actually running. Um, I know they're very, very repetitive, kind of predictable. You know, first I picked up my left leg, and then I put it down, and then my right leg, and I put it down. It's kind of, and then uh, it always goes back. And that's how running is like life, okay? So that is where I'm going, but it's predictable. Sorry. Um, Whitney is the one whose fault. She's the one who kind of got me into running. I was not, uh, you know, even years after she kind of convinced me to, to run with her, I, I wasn't all that excited about Running, but she she gave me two really good pieces of advice that maybe they sound a little bit simplistic, but you know when you're you're running, they're they're very helpful for me. One was uh, keep running. In other words, whenever it feels like you just want to stop, just basically put the next foot in front of the other foot and and just keep going. So don't stop. And her other piece of advice was when you're running that that marathon or whatever length it is, don't think of the marathon as a a 26.2 mile race. Think of it as as just the last 26 miles of a very long, long run of the 500 miles that you've run or a thousand miles or however many miles it is of your training. So you've it's not just it's not just one event. This one event is the culmination of many, 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 many other runs. It's just the last little bit of that, and that's helpful. I was reading an article by a, a woman who she and her husband were training for a marathon together, and she was being very diligent in all her training, and her husband was not. And in preparation for the marathon, he ran a total of seven times, which is is really nowhere near enough runs to be prepared to run 26.2 miles. And uh, then before the race, he prepared by eating a bunch of Pop-Tarts, um, bagels, bananas. Uh, he's, you know, he didn't, he didn't want to uh, 
He didn't want to not have enough fuel. And then during the race, he ate Kit Kats and Oreos and I think uh, pretzels and uh, all sorts. I think he consumed several beers and a Coca-Cola. She says that she she thinks that her husband is the only person to have ever run a marathon and uh, consumed more calories than he burned uh, during during the race. And it, it did not go well for him. Uh, there's the, a time of preparation. Anything you want to do, right, and anything you want to do that's, that's an accomplishment of, of some degree requires preparation and, and training. And if, if, it's a, if it's a long run, there's the early morning runs and the runs in the heat and the cold and the rain and whatever it is, and it, it, it culminates in that final run, right? And running is just like life, no. But as we think about life and we think about what God has called us to, we, we recognize uh, God has called us for a purpose. He's created us for a, a purpose. And you think about our, our church's purpose statement. We believe that we exist as a church to glorify God. Remember that statement? We exist to glorify God as we what? As we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and as we prepare as we prepare people to worship him forever. That's, that's why we exist. As a church, we believe that our, our existence is so that we would be engaging in preparing people to worship God forever. And we, we take that from Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, uh, preparing people, uh, teaching and warning people with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete or mature in Christ. And Paul says, for this I, I toil. And he talks about struggling with the mightily with the, the power which God himself works within me. And that's, that's what we're doing as well. Our goal is to prepare people to worship God for eternity. And that just doesn't happen. We don't just walk up, wake up one day in eternity and say, okay, now it's time to worship God. We recognize that, that right now, in this moment where God has placed us, we are to be equipping one another for that ultimate purpose for which God created us. And we do so by doing the things that God has told us to do, toiling for those things, not in our own strength, but by the strength that God supplies in his grace, just like we talked about last week. But that's not the only way that God prepares us. God doesn't prepare us for worship just through the things that we do with the power he gives us. God also prepares us by the circumstances in which he places us. God prepares us for our future worship of him through the situations and circumstances that he, he sovereignly places us in. In fact, as we, th- we think about how we're going to go through this passage, kind of the, the main idea that I want you to think about is, is this. As he works in our lives, God relentlessly pursues the purpose for which we were created, worship. I'll say it again. As he works in our lives, God relentlessly, God relentlessly pursues the purpose for which you and I were created, worship. God is working circumstantially to prepare worshipers. In his sovereignty, God works in our lives in all circumstances to produce the heart of a worshiper. And there's four statements I kind of want us to think through from these verses that I think illustrate that. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. God knows which trials will destroy us and which ones 
will strengthen us. God knows which circumstances will, which trials will destroy us and which ones will strengthen us. Here's, look at the text with me, beginning in verse 17. It says, when, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea and kind of describes uh, what he does there. Now, th- there's two things that I want you to notice there. First of all, notice what God doesn't do. And, and let me show you a little bit of a map here. What does God not do? I don't know how well you can see that, but you might have a map in your Bible as well. It kind of shows the route of the Exodus. Up here are where the, where the Israelites are, and here's where they want to be. And they could have just really easily gone over there, the, the, the way of the Philistines. They could have taken this route, and instead of 40 years or decades or whatever it takes them to get there, they could have done it in days, right? God could have sovereignly decided to lead them that way, the, the short way. But instead, and in begin, beginning here in this passage, God, so God chooses not to do that. Instead, he chooses to take them down this way. And if, if you look in a map, an atlas, it kind of shows the different routes. We're not exactly sure where the places that Moses is mentioning are. We're not sure where those places are. Um, perhaps, perhaps... The, he takes them down to this, this, this region, and that phrase, Red Sea, that you see in chapter 13, it can also be translated uh, Sea of Reeds. And so we're not exactly sure even what body of water this, this is. It might have been this area, the Bitter Lakes. It might be down here. It might be a little bit further north. We're not exactly sure of the route of the Exodus, and you can see the different uh, places. But what we know is that, here, here's what we do know. God chooses not to do something. He chooses not to lead them by the way of the of the Philistines, not that easy route. And he chooses not to do so because God not only knows the future, he not only has an infinite knowledge of the future, God has an infinite knowledge of all infinitely possible futures. And God, as he looks at that possible future, says, this is not what I want. I don't want the possibility of leading my people on this path that would give them an opportunity to flee. He recognizes that if he takes them into to that situation, they're going to have an opportunity to turn back, and he doesn't want that to happen. So what does he choose to do? Notice he doesn't choose to lead them an easier way. It's not like, okay, I have an opportunity to lead my people into something bad and, and hard or easy, and so I'm going to choose what's easy. No, he also what he does choose to lead them to is, is also difficult. But he leads them into a place where they're going to be trapped. Where they're not going to be able to escape the, the trial that he has for them. He knows which trials in his sovereignty will destroy us and which trials will strengthen us. Which ones will overwhelm us and which ones will ultimately cause us to worship him forever. And notice this too. Notice his faithfulness in fulfilling the promise that Joseph knew about. And then notice, notice what it says about God's presence with them. It says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And I think this, you know, that word pillar can be 
uh, translated column. That's kind of the idea that's being described here. And, and what, what Moses is telling us is that there's this, this physical, visible manifestation of God's presence. They, they can see him, see a representation here. I think it's the same column. By day, it appears as a cloud. By night, it's a, it's a pillar of fire. We encounter it several times, this, this physical manifestation of God's presence, several times throughout the book of Exodus. We're going to see it next chapter in verses 19 through 20. And we're going to see it in verse 24. We're going to see it in Exodus 24, verses 15 through 18, about the, the glory of the Lord, this cloud. In 14, we, we see this pillar of fire and of cloud looking down the Egyptian forces. We see in Exodus 40, see Numbers 14. We see this several times. This physical manifestation of, of God's presence. Comforting. My children, at different times in their lives, have been a little uncomfortable about going to different places in the house even without mom and dad. So we might be in the basement watching a show or something, reading a book, and then you might tell one of the kids, hey, why don't you go take a shower? And they go, okay, um, do you guys want to come upstairs too? You know, like, not, not that I'm afraid of the upstairs, but maybe if we just all went together, we'd have more fun. You know, there's kind of a little bit of nervousness. And we are talking about this reality uh, yesterday, and, and one of our kids said, well, of course we felt that way. I mean, you never know if a clown is going to be at your door and come in and say, hey, kids. And I said, that's, that's a great point. Um, you, you don't ever know that. You know, none of us know. And all infinite possible futures, I suppose. And so um, our children recognize that there's, there's something, whether or not I would be able to, to stop a clown, I don't know. Um, but there, there's something comforting about having dad with you. Last night, our so we've been talking about that as I was kind of in the car with the kids talking about my passage here that we we're going to talk about and mentioning that reality from our family's life. And the kids talked about, oh, that's, you know, that was so funny how we used to be that way or whatever. And then last night our power went out and suddenly everyone was in our room again. Um, I didn't say that in the first service because my kids were here. Probably should have cleared that with them. The idea, though, is this, and, and I'm the same way. I'm the same way. There's something comforting about other people's presence. And what is more comforting than God's presence? And so God manifests his presence here for his people. And God, in his sovereignty, knows which trials are going to destroy us and which ones will strengthen us, and, and he leads us into those things. Now, here's, here's why I'm saying all this. Life is a game of inches at time, right? At times. Think about it in, in the sports world. Um, there was apparently some big sports event this last week, and a, a team won something or other, and you know, the Cubs, blah, blah, blah. Um, they, they won, and you think about 108 years of near misses, right? Different times where, oh, this, it just seems so close, and then it eludes. And if this, if this catch had gone this way, or if this game had gone that way, or if this playoff series, and, and it's just so close. And finally, things come together. Think about that in other sporting events. You know, as a Cowboys fan, think about, man, if Tony Romo in 2006 hadn't mishandled that, that, uh, that snap and the, the kick would have been good and they would have continued the playoffs. Or if in 2014, if, if uh, Des Bryant had, had just kind of held the ball a different way, or to put it another way, if, if the 
if uh, the officials had just had better eyes and recognized that he did catch that ball. Uh, don't talk to my wife about that play. She's still very, very upset about it. But um, there are moments in a sports team's franchise where just inches and, and history would be different. And the same is true in your life and my life. Our lives are, are sometimes just moments of, of near misses. And for some of us, there can be a frustration. We can say, um, I'm, I'm here right now. Someone just texted me, Des caught it. Um, I appreciate that. Um, our lives were just a moment of mere, of mere inches, right? We find ourselves in a situation where, man, if, if, if I had just done this differently five years ago, if, if just six years ago I'd made this decision differently, where I would be now would be a totally different place. And if, if, um, if only I had made this decision two decades ago, then my life would be different now. And many of us are people who are just living with a profound sense of regret. And the comforting thing, I believe, for you and for me is to recognize that, that God has sovereignly led us to this place. And where we find ourselves is, is, is a place where a loving God has, has said, hey, in whatever circumstance or trial you're in, this is where I believe you will not be destroyed but strengthened. This is a, a place where I believe that you have the opportunity to grow and become a worshiper of me through this. You know, I just went to my 20th year high school reunion, and I can think of regrets and different decisions I made and you know, tests I didn't do well on or career paths, you know, that I thought, oh, I'm definitely going to do this and then didn't. And then there was some whatever feelings. And, and I, I just saw my classmates and, um, you know, there wasn't a, a single one there that I would trade places with. Not the high-powered executive, not the successful lawyer, not my classmate from Colorado who now sells marijuana. I mean, none of them, right? None of them. As, as much as God is doing different things in different ones of their life, not all, but different things in their life, um, I'm, I'm glad for God has placed them, but that, that's not where he wants me to be. That's not where he wants me to be. God wants me to be here by his grace, and he's with me, always preparing me for worship. Here's a second statement to think through. God purposefully leads us into trials that are, are real and deadly. He purposefully leads us, so he knows which trials are going to destroy us and which ones will strengthen us, but he also, he also purposefully leads us into trials that are real and deadly. Now, look here at chapter 14, and I want you to look at verses 1 through 4 and kind of contrast it with verses 5 through 9. And what you see in verses 1 through 4 is you see a description of what's taking place from God's perspective. This is what God says about what's taking place and what his purpose is. And then in verses 5 through 9, you see the, the same events through Pharaoh's eyes, his perspective on what's taking place. God's goal in verses 1 through 4 is his glory. Pharaoh's goal in verses 5 through 9 is Pharaoh's glory. So you see in verses 1 through 4, God describes the type of glory that he's going to have over Pharaoh, his, his desire. He tells 
Moses to you know, turn back and camp in front of Pihahiroth, and we're not exactly sure where that is, in, uh, in between Migdal and the sea, and, and, and camp facing it. And Pharaoh's going to look, and by the way, there would have been military outposts throughout the edge of Egypt, because Israel's heading towards the, the edge of Egyptian territory, and the military garrisons would have been able to observe what the Israelites were doing. They kind of report back to Pharaoh, man, these guys are they're losing it. They're just kind of wandering around. Now they're, now they're encamped facing the sea. If you, if you ever want a chance to get them back, now's your time. And that's all part of God's plan. He says, Pharaoh's going to say that they're wondering, I'm going to harden his heart, he'll pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts for this purpose, that all Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is to display his glory. Back, we talked about this before, back to Genesis 12. God's desire that all the people of the earth should be blessed through Abraham, become worshipers of him. Pharaoh, verses 5 through 9, has a plan to display his glory. He recognizes the enormity of what he's permitted the Israelites to do. He recognizes that this will potentially lead to his being overthrown as if the Israelites unite with his enemies. He recognizes the, the loss of labor, the economic downturn that will take place in Egypt if he doesn't have this entire class of laborers. He recognizes this is a big deal and it threatens my autonomy, my power, my glory. And so Pharaoh decides to act as well. And God has orchestrated the entire thing. He's led his people into a situation in which their lives are on the line. Don't be deceived about the nature of trial. Sometimes we have this, this misconception that trials are almost not real, or that the believer who's walking with God shouldn't really face trials, or that when they do face trials, God isn't keeping up his end of the bargain. What I want us to understand is that the trials are not illusions, and trials are not necessarily a sign of God's disfavor, but, but God purposefully leads us into trials that are real and deadly, again, with the ultimate purpose of us becoming worshipers. The people who have followed the Lord, people of faith, have encountered incredibly difficult and real and deadly trials throughout the history of humanity. People who love the Lord and are walking in obedience with the Lord have faced financial ruin. They have faced loss of health. They have faced the loss of loved ones, the loss of prestige, the, the, loss, of all, the loss of all things, the loss of their own life. Why? Why would God purposefully lead us into trials that are real and deadly? Well, let me give you just one example. Psalm 43, and you can turn there if you want. Psalm 43, David is is writing, and he says in Psalm 43, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. And so David is is facing this, this real trial, this real persecution. And 
He says, you're the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And so as you look at David's response, it's, it's not an unreasonable response to feel overwhelmed as, as whatever circumstance in his life is taking place. And he thinks about the enormity of the situation. He thinks about the trial. And there's this sense of, of, of being overwhelmed. But what does that lead to? As that takes place, what happens in David's life? He says in verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. In other words, I'm not going to base my understanding of reality upon these circumstances alone. I, I, want, I want in these circumstances to turn to you. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. He's saying, let these circumstances propel me to worship. And then I will go to the altar of God to God, my exceeding joy. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? In the midst of this trial and this, and this, this real and deadly place in which God has placed me, what's going to happen? I'm going to turn to God and there I'm going to find my joy. Why are you cast down? He says in verse 5 oh my, of Psalm 43, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So I come to this conclusion. The trials that you and I face are not illusory. They're not make-believe. They're real. They're deadly. But God purposefully leads his people into places in which the temporal and even the eternal consequences are profound. And from an outsider's perspective, it might seem like God is playing a very dangerous dice game to see what happens. We recognize that this is a plan of a, a loving God to prepare us to worship him. And maybe you're there this morning as well. Maybe you are in a, a tough place this morning. You are in a, a tough bind. And, and here's what I encourage you with. Here, here's, here's the point. We often use ends-based reasoning to determine God's will. What I mean is we might say, okay, um, here's what I'm doing. I'm doing X, and here's what's happening, Y. And because Y is a negative thing, there's something wrong with X. So I'm, I'm choosing to obey God and love my friend, I'm choosing not to cheat in school, and yet why is happening? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not making good grades, or I'm loving my, my siblings, but they're treating me badly, or I'm loving my spouse, but, but he or she is treating me badly. I'm, I'm doing all that I'm supposed to be doing at work, and yet I'm not getting the promotions that other people are getting. You see, this is ends-based reason. We're saying, okay, because Y isn't what I want it to be. That must mean there's something wrong with X. I'm in, this, I'm in this situation that's outside of God's will, or God isn't keeping his end of the bargain, or there, there's something wrong. Because if I was really in God's will, if God were really in the situation, I would be doing X, and Y would be happening, and Y would be like beautiful flowers in my life. You know, I work hard, and I get the promotion. Everyone recognizes how great I am. I, I love my spouse the way that I'm supposed to be, and she um, makes a, a, a pedestal in which she places my name at the very top, and every morning wakes up singing my praises. I mean, uh, I would do X, and Y would happen. Y isn't happening, therefore X must be wrong. 
That's, that's the wrong way to look at the Christian life. That's not what God has said happens. Or we might do it the other way. We might say, you know, I'm doing X, I'm living this selfish life, and things are good. Therefore, God's pleased with this. I'm pursuing my own ends and not caring for other people, and I'm pretty happy about that. Therefore, God's in this. That's not, that's not the case. Our responsibility is, is to follow the column, to follow God into, into whatever circumstance he sovereignly places us, to go where God leads. In a dark time with our family, in a dark time with our finances, in a dark time with relationships, that's what God has called us to do. Here's a third statement. Third statement, my response to trials reveals if I'm truly a worshiper. So here's the picture. Look, look down here at verse 10 of chapter 14. And Pharaoh draws near. And, and as Pharaoh draws near, it says, so here's that the people's lives are truly in danger. It says the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and what was their response? Their response was to fear greatly. So here's the response. It's fear, and that fear is not belief. It's, it's fear of, of man. And they cry out to the Lord, and it's not a cry of faith. It's a cry of complaint. They complain to Moses, look, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? And that's a very ironic statement. There were plenty of graves in Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians were obsessed with death. The the Israelites have been, I'm sure, involved in, in helping with that process of, of building constructions for the celebration of death. Uh, it's because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Now, I don't remember them saying that. I don't remember them. I remember them being upset at Moses at times, but I, I never remember them saying, hey, Moses, we, all we want to do is serve the Egyptians. It's our joy in life, right? So it's wrong in that sense, although there were, there were times where they wanted Moses to leave them alone. But then they say in verse 12, uh, me, let me serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, and that is also a wrong statement. It would be better to die where God has placed you than to live where he hasn't. It would be far better to die doing what God has told you to do than to live in disobedience. Moses says, look, God's going to take care of this. Stand back. But here's the sad thing. In that moment of trial... What is revealed about the Israelites? It's revealed that they aren't true worshipers. I have a, a sponge up here. Imagine if I, I took this sponge and immersed it in water and took it out and just squeezed. What, what would come out of the sponge? Water. If I was cleaning, using the sponge to clean up another milk mess on our kitchen table, and then I were to squeeze it out, what, what would come out of the sponge? Milk, right? The point is, squeezing doesn't cause there to be water inside the sponge, right? I don't say, you know, I, 
I've got this dry sponge here right now. I don't say, you know what, I like water. I can squeeze all day. No water is coming out of this. Squeezing just reveals what's already inside of the sponge. And the same is true for the Israelites here. The squeeze doesn't cause them to not worship God. The squeeze reveals that they already don't worship God. And you and I, the same thing. Sometimes we'll say, boy, if I, if I wasn't so stressed, I'm, I'm so stressed and that's why I'm responding with anger. Or I'm, I'm so upset about how my friend is treating me and, and because I'm, you know, I'm, just, I'm tired and so I'm kind of lashing out. Or it's my kids, you know, boy, if I didn't have these kids or if I had more free time or if this or that, then I, would, then I would respond rightly. But because of all these circumstances, that's causing these bad things to be in my heart. No, circumstances are just this, this giant hand that squeezes our hearts. And, and as our circumstances squeeze our hearts, they reveal what's in them. What's revealed here? The people of Israelite do not worship God. Well, here's the last statement to think about. God demonstrates his power through trials to produce worshipers. God demonstrates his power through, through trials to produce worshipers. And we, we see here the deliverance we, we read about already. There's this, there's this deliverance. And now you think about this, this, these verses in your children's illustrated Bible that you grew up reading, or if your kid that your parents read to you, and what, what's the, the picture, the, the, the picture in the movie, either the Charlton Heston version or the, you know, the DreamWorks animated version? There's this vision of, of Moses, and, and he holds up his mighty staff, and the wind is, is blowing his, his robes, and, and you know, there's this fierce look on his face, and his beard is going all over the place and and he holds up the staff and as he holds up the staff the 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 seas part now the the focus on the text is on god this is all about god's deliverance now moses is faithful and being obedient to god but the, the the point of the whole passage is for god to get his glory because it's god who does this the the lord will fight for you moses says in verse 14 you just need to be quiet and then it talks about the angel of the Lord who goes between the Israelites and the Egyptians, protecting the people of Israel. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. Verse 21, the Lord drives the sea back by a strong east wind. The, the people go across. Then in verse 26, in, in fact, uh, you go earlier, and this is about between 2 and 6 in the morning, and it says the Lord, this is verse 24, looks down on the Egyptian forces. He throws them into a panic, and the Egyptians don't say, Man, this Moses guy has a staff. No, they say in verse 25, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord, Yahweh, fights for them against us, against the Egyptians. Then God says to Moses, stretch out your hand again. The waters come over the Egyptians and they drown. And then look at verse 31 of, verse 14, of chapter 14. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God demonstrates his power here. And as he demonstrates his power, the, the response of the people is worship. 
God is relentlessly pursuing worshipers. And the people respond in, in song as they think about what God has done. Now, here are just three statements I, I want us to think about. Number one, worship responds to and is grounded in the character and acts of God. There's a, a book that uh, Mike Chambers, our, our worship pastor, turned me on to called Worship Matters by Bob Coughlin. And in the book, uh, Coughlin talks about the proliferation of, of worship leaders and how it's kind of a surprisingly a relative new phenomenon. And he says uh, worship leaders just over the last few decades have now become uh, this, this, central, this central part of, of church life. And he says, and this is Bob Coughlin, who is a worship leader, he says, have they become too important? And Mike scratched that portion out of the copy of the book he gave me. But he says, he quotes someone saying, for many young people, uh, the, the type of, of music or the, the, the type of worship has become all-consuming important. And again, we're not saying that you should worship badly. It's not wrong to have preferences. But, but what he's describing here is this, this phenomenon by which the music itself has become more important than the biblical teaching upon which worship is supposed to be based. If that distinction makes sense. Coughlin asks, is... He says, music in the church is important, but is it more important than solid biblical teaching that helps me grow in the knowledge of God and obedience to his word? You see, worship responds to and is grounded in the character and the acts of God. I don't just kind of vaguely worship. I I think about who God is, and as I think about who God is and what he's done, that's that's the fuel for my worship. I'm not worshiping some vague entity. I know kind of a you know, just a few scattering thoughts about some good things about him. No, I, I think about God, and the more I think about, his, about who he is and his character and his acts, worship, worship flows from that. Doctrine is the fuel of worship, not something that, that dampens it. Here's a second thought here that I think is important. Belief precedes worship. And sometimes I think our temptation, all of us in the evangelical church in North America face this, Sometimes our temptation is, okay, um, I want to reach the lost, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the lost inside the church, get them worshiping, and then they'll become Christians. And it's the exact opposite. Belief in who God is, belief in who God is, must precede responsive worship. There's no true worship without believing in who God is. Then a third statement to to think about as we think about this, how God is relentlessly pursuing his purpose to create worshipers even through trial. Number three, environment doesn't create the heart of a worshiper, it, it reveals it. Now obviously, as we think about the environment in which we're worshiping in, worship service, our goal isn't to make it like impossible to sing or something, things like that, or to, to, you know, to, to, we don't purposefully make it either too hot or too cold in here. That's not our goal, right? But at the same time, we recognize, look, it's, environment doesn't, 
getting the right, the lighting right, getting you know the right number, right temperature, the right sound decibels. None of those things are going to create a worshiper. Our environment, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week, reveals whether or not we're true worshipers. As He works in our lives, God relentlessly pursues the purpose for which we were created: worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your relentless pursuit of worship in our lives. Help us to submit to that and to take joy in that and in you and in who you are. Give us the ability, by your grace, to to trust in your son Jesus as we trust in him. That he would be our all-sufficient source for love and response of worship to you. We pray this in his name. Amen.